songs are, we've got some about the greatness of God and one about the goodness of God. So if you just reflect on, on God's goodness and greatness um, as we continue this morning, we're going to keep singing.
be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you here this morning. We join together to worship and celebrate a God who, as we just sang, does great things. We are delighted that you're here with us. If you're new or you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're joining with us this morning as we worship our God. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that at the close of the sermon this morning, we will partake in communion together. So as part of our kind of communion Sundays each month, we also take a, a special benevolence offering. And so that offering is used to meet the needs of people in our community and in our church who have material needs, whether because of some kind of illness or some kind of other um, just need that comes up. And so on your way out this morning... Uh, at the doors, there will be people holding trays. And that, those trays are where the benevolence offering can be placed. Regular tithes and offerings that go to just the ministries of this church generally, those can go in the brown boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. A couple other announcements to bring to your attention. One is that VBS, um, our Vacation Bible School, starts this tomorrow, right, July 10th. Um, and so if you are interested in helping with that, I'm sure Pastor Ian could still find a spot to help you get plugged in and serve in that capacity. And also, if you still need to register kids or you aware of other families who would be interested, there's information about how to register on the back of your bulletin. One other announcement is that on August 20th, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. So we will have the church service here in this building, but then we'll go down to Maple Lake and have baptism. This morning, when we get to the sermon, I'm going to preach on Paul saying, follow my example. And one thing Paul did was, after he trusted in Jesus, he was baptized. And that's part of what it means to be an obedient follower of Jesus, is to be baptized. And so if you've never done that and are interested in doing that, um, I'd love to talk to you more about what that looks like and have you be part of our August 20th baptism um, service down at the lake. As we continue in this time of worship this morning, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father God, we stand in awe of all the great things you have done in the past and you are doing now, and we look forward to all the great things you will do in the future. We thank you, we praise you for this opportunity to gather together as your people in this place to worship you. I pray for the heart of each person in this room this morning that that would be our burning desire, that our heart's desire would be to bring you honor and bring you praise and bring you glory through the songs that we sing, through the ways that we fellowship with one another, through how we listen to and hear your word. Father, would this morning be all about rejoicing and celebrating and glorifying you for the great things you have done and are doing and will do. 
Father, I pray for the people who are here or who are part of our church family who are going through trials and difficulties, who are hurting, that you would encourage them, that you would give them a deep abiding sense of your presence alongside them. You bring comfort to those who need comfort. You bring healing to those in need of healing. Pray for all of us as we walk through trials and tribulations of this life that is marred by living in a sinful and broken world that you would give us eyes to see the future glory that awaits each of us when Jesus returns and sets all things right and we live together in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day comes, God, would you help us to live faithfully now the life you have called us to live? Would you help us to burning desire to see your kingdom on earth advance? You have the burning desire to love others well. You give us the burning desire to be faithful and obedient to all that you have called us to. And let all our lives be fully dedicated to your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we continue in worship?
mighty and worthy of all our praise. So, and so with every breath that you give us, would we pour out praise to you and our lives be about bringing you honor and glory and praise. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in 1982, the famous, the assistant of the famous director Steven Spielberg, that's a woman named Kathleen Kennedy, she hired a 16-year-old kid named Jeffrey Jacob Abrams for $300 to restore some old 8-millimeter film that was kind of decaying that contained videos that Spielberg had made when he was a young, aspiring filmmaker. $300 is to restore some old film that Spielberg has shot. Fast forward 30 years, and Kennedy had risen through the ranks, going from being Spielberg's assistant to the point where she was now the president of Lucasfilm, right, the production company of famed Star Wars director George Lucas. This is Kennedy and George Lucas together. Right? And as president of Lucasfilm, Kennedy was responsible in 2013 to hire the director for a new trilogy of Star Wars movies, right? what would become episodes 7, 8, and 9 in the Star Wars universe. And with that task of hiring a new director, she once again hired Abrams. Right? Although Abrams now went by J.J. instead of Jeffrey, and instead of $300, J.J. Abrams signed a, meal, a deal worth $500 million to direct those movies. This is Abrams. And of course, like that deal for $500 million didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't based solely on his film restoration work. Abrams had made a name for himself after working for Spielberg for, by creating and producing TV shows like Felicity and Alias and Lost. And then he jumped from TV to movies and he directed big budget movies in the Mission Impossible universe and the Star Trek franchise. And before being hired by Kennedy to write those Star Wars movies, he worked on all those other kind of big movies. So he had worked, he had made films in both the Star Trek and the Star Wars universe, making him like the ultimate nerd hero. And those Star Wars films that he was hired by Kennedy to make, they were not loved by fans of the original movies, but they did make a lot of money. Altogether, Abrams' movies have made the seventh most amount of money of any director at the domestic box office ever despite the fact that he only directed seven films. On a per-movie basis, his movies average more at the domestic box office than any director ever. He's seventh overall in terms of total value. And of course, the, the director on top of that list for most money ever made for movies is Spielberg himself, who Abrams started his career working for by restoring new videos, or old, old videos. And Abrams has been called the new Spielberg by a number of publications, and there's a lot of similarity between some of their styles of filmmaking. And that's no wonder, right? because that job restoring Spielberg's old films led to a, a friendship and a mentorship between Spielberg and Abrams that had a profound impact on Abrams' career. 
the little childhood films that Abrams restored, they were shot on something called Super 8 film. And in 2011, Abrams directed and produced a movie called Super 8, all about a kid making a home movie on Super 8 film. And it was an ode, right, to his and Spielberg's shared love of making movies as children. And in fact, Spielberg was the co-producer on that project. Here's Abrams and Spielberg together. And in an interview leading up to the release of that film, Abrams talked about the impact that Spielberg had had on his career. And he said this, that over the years I started showing him the scripts before I committed to doing them just to get his response and to talk to him, he was always a confidant. And when he was first approached to direct a new Star Trek movie, not Star Wars, this is before Star Wars, right? he wasn't sure whether he was up to the task. It would be only his second major film, and he wasn't sure if he was up for it. And he asked two people about the decision. Right? His wife and Spielberg. Right? Both of them said he should do it, and he did, and it was a successful movie. And it turned out that it was Spielberg himself who recommended Abrams to Kathleen Kennedy to direct the Star Wars movies. At the point of all this being that having a mentor, having someone to look up to, having someone's example to follow, it's incredibly important to getting where you want to go in life. It's very challenging, very difficult to get where you want to go if you have no example of what it looks like to get there. There's a reason that like, 2% of all professional baseball players right, are the sons of former professional baseball players. Right? Despite the fact that they make up a minuscule percentage of all aspiring baseball players. Like, part of that's genetic, but part of it's also having someone to look at who's been where you want to go having good examples and models to follow greatly increases our chance of getting to where we want to be. That's as true in the Christian life as anywhere else. Like, yes, Jesus is our ultimate example. We should look to him first and foremost. But in today's passage in Philippians, Paul makes it clear that we need others in our lives who can model for us what the Christian life looks like who can be an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 together. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to read through the end of chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Paul writes this. Join together in following my example brothers and sisters. And just as you have have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies 
so that they will be like his glorious body. So Paul, in this passage, he holds himself up as an example, as a model to be followed in contrast to others who live lives that should not be emulated, right? those who he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. And in particular, he highlights kind of two things about his way of life that people who want to be like Christ should also seek to emulate. He says his life is worth emulating because he knows that his citizenship is in heaven and because he is living in anticipation of eternity. He knows that this life is not the end. This life is not all there is. This life is not the finish line. If we take all that together, the point of this passage, this passage is in the Bible to urge us to follow Paul's example by remembering our citizenship and by anticipating eternity. The first thing we're we're urged to do in this passage is to follow Paul's example. At first glance, seeing Paul say, join together and following my example, is an interesting statement. Throughout this letter, Paul has highlighted the importance of humility as the key aspect of the Christian life. He said things like, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And saying, hey, look at me, follow my example, does not, on the surface, seem particularly humble. Like, read the wrong way, it can seem like Paul is saying, look at me, look at how great I am, don't you want to be like me? Like, read the wrong way, it can come across as quite arrogant. But read more closely, I think we see that that's not the case. Because at the end of the day, what Paul is urging the Philippians to do when he says, follow me, is not to follow Paul himself in his own flesh, but rather to follow Paul insofar as he emulates and is following Jesus. Paul doesn't say it directly here, but it's implied. All throughout this book, Paul has spoken of his desire to honor Christ and to know Christ and to follow Christ and to be like Jesus. That's what Paul's life has been all about. And so now he's inviting the Philippians to join him in that. The question we must ask when Paul says, follow my example is, like, example of what? And in verse 16, the verse right before he says, follow my example, Paul says, let us live up to what we have already attained. And so the example that Paul invites the Philippians to emulate is his example in living up to what he's already attained in Christ Jesus. And he just got done saying in this letter right, that he considered all his personal earthly accomplishments as rubbish and as garbage. So he's clearly not saying to his readers, hey, you should seek to accomplish what I've accomplished on a personal level. Rather, he's saying that they should follow him as he follows Jesus. In another of his letters, the letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says exactly that. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And in Philippians, right after he says, 
in humility, value others above yourselves. He goes on to clarify what he means by that when he says, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And Paul knows that it is in the Philippians' best interest to follow his example, insofar as he is following Jesus. Paul's not saying, hey, follow my example because Paul himself wants an ego boost. He's saying, follow my example because following his example is, will be in the best interest of the Philippians. He says, follow my example because he wants what is best for them. To put it another way, in calling others to follow him, to be like him, Paul is displaying true humility rather than false humility which we often get confused the author Randy Conley described the difference this way humble people fully appreciate their own gifts and talents but don't esteem themselves above others false humility on the other hand is pridefulness in disguise we practice false humility when we intentionally devalue ourselves or our contributions in an attempt to appear humble. Connolly is a, a secular author, but I think he's right on in describing this distinction between true humility and false humility. Uh, to what he said, I would just add, right, that humble people fully appreciate that their, their gifts and their talents are given to them by God. But if Paul had said, hey, don't be like me. I'm just a broken, no good sinner with nothing to offer you. He would have been downplaying the work that God had done in his life. He would have been intentionally devaluing himself and his contributions in order to appear humble. But in doing so, he would have been doing a huge disservice to the Philippians. Because we need people in our lives, who serve as models and examples of what it looks like to get where we want to go, especially in our Christian walk. We should all have Pauls in our lives. We should all have people in our lives that we can live up to, that we can look at and see, like, we want to be like that. There's a quote from, from Stephen Lawson in your bulletin, and there's slides up as well that drive home this point well. He says this, that every Christian today needs to have the same kind of example before them. Why is the believer who has several such people in their life as mentors and leaders misguided at the believer who thinks they have no need of these types of influences? Having an array of advanced Christian modeling of, of it having an array of advanced Christians modeling genuine spirituality will produce a much more balanced, healthy Christian life. Those who have no example wiser and godlier than themselves will aim at nothing and hit very little. And those with only one personal example will likely eventually adopt not only that person's strengths, but also their weaknesses. Moreover, every Christian must be a positive example for other believers. Other people in the church are observing how we live 
our lives. They are watching our actions and reactions. They are listening to our words and observing how we treat others. This places a great responsibility upon us in how we conduct ourselves. Jesus issued this warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We must never cause other believers to stumble because of the way we live. Instead, we must always beckon other believers into greater joy, faith, and Christ-likeness because of the way we live. Ask yourself, who am I imitating? And could others imitate me? Who am I imitating? And could others imitate me? That is the essence of discipleship. What it looks like to be a disciple and to disciple others, to learn from others and to invite others to learn from you as you pursue the same goal together. I just urge you to find people in your life who can be this kind of example to you, who can be a Paul in your life. If there is someone who you see following Christ in a manner that you admire, then I would just urge you, invite them to have coffee with you, ask them to disciple you, ask them to be a mentor to you in your Christian walk. Take that step and ask them to be that for you. Likewise, if you see someone who's younger and less mature in their faith than you, then step into their lives. Invite them to coffee. Ask them if they want to meet regularly or do a Bible study or read a book together. Like Invest in developing and encouraging others to grow in their faith need help knowing where to start, what that looks like, or if you need resources for this kind of discipleship, then I would like love to give you resources and equip you to do this kind of ministry in someone's life. But be a Paul to someone, have someone be a Paul to you. Now maybe you say like, well, look, I'm, I'm messed up, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I don't want anyone to imitate me. Or maybe you've had people you've looked up to in the past and then you've seen them fail in spectacular fashion and you say, like, I'm done following others. I'm done looking up to others. That's why we must remember that this imitation only goes so far as that the person we're imitating is imitating Christ. Paul is a man who is keenly aware of his own sin. He would never suggest that the Philippians should imitate him in those ways. But his sin didn't disqualify him from saying, join together and following my example. As long as he is dealing with his sin in a godly way by confessing his sin and repenting of his sin and asking for forgiveness from the people he's offended, as long as he's trusting in the grace of God to forgive his sins, like, then he can be a model for others even in the midst of his sin. In fact, I would say like one of the best 
examples we can offer someone. Right? The example of how to confess and repent well. You know, talk about humility. Being willing to own your own sin. Being willing to confess your sin and own up to it and repent of it and let others see you walking through that process. Take a humble person, secure in their forgiveness through the blood of Christ to do that. We would all do well to see confession and repentance modeled in our lives and to model it well for others. Paul knows that while he isn't perfect, inviting the Philippians to imitate him can have a positive impact on the Christian walk of others. In particular, Paul highlights two things about himself that are worth emulating. The first of those is that he knows where his citizenship lies. And Paul contrasts where his citizenship lies with, with those whom he calls the enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, As I have told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. For those whom Paul calls the enemies of the cross of Christ, he says, their mind is set on earthly things. They're living only for the things of this life. Their citizenship is centered on the things of this earth. In particular, the, the people in the region of Philippi, they were, they were deeply proud of their special status as Roman citizens, even though they lived hundreds of miles from Rome. They had been given this special status as Roman citizens, and they were deeply proud of it. Now Paul says, remember, like your citizenship is in heaven first. Your citizenship in Rome is secondary at best. You are a citizen of heaven. For people who are only concerned with this life, their their primary concern is kind of self-satisfaction, self-adulation. Paul sums this up by saying, their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. It's saying their God is their stomach is kind of a catch-all for for all kinds of self-indulgent behavior. Like all they really care about is being able to eat whatever they want, drink whatever they want, spend their time however they want, spend their money however they want. Right? Their God is their own self-indulgence. And if this life is all that there is, right, then that kind of behavior is perfectly rational. Paul, Paul says it himself. He says... In 1 Corinthians, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, then self-indulgent, self-promoting behavior is totally rational. Find whatever pleasure you can here and now, because this life is a vapor. If this life is all there is, then by all means. But of course, Paul believe that this life is not all there is. 
And that radically changes things for him. He says in verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's mind is not set on earthly things because his citizenship is in heaven. So therefore he does not indulge in self-indulgent or or self-glorifying behavior. Rather, he lives in light of his own citizenship. His deepest identity, that he is a citizen of heaven, a follower of Christ. The same thing should be true of us. Pastor Dennis Johnson puts it this way. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, who we are is no longer determined by where we have come from, but instead by where we are going. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, who we are is no longer determined by where we have come from, but instead by where we are going. This week I was reading about the United States citizenship test, and I came across a list of some of the hardest questions on that test. Here's just a few of them. You can just enter in your head and see if you know all of these. The one was, who was president during the Great Depression and World War II? Another is, what is the rule of law? Or who was president during World War I? What year was the Constitution written? How many members are in the House of Representatives? How many amendments does the Constitution have? Name one writer of the Federalist Papers. I don't know about you, but didn't know all of those before I looked at that. It's a tricky question. But thankfully, to be a to be a citizen of heaven, there's only one question we must answer. Do you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? While the citizenship test for heaven only has one question, the ramifications of the answer to that question are monumental. Your answer to that question changes absolutely everything. If your answer is no, I don't believe that, then Paul says... Your destiny is destruction. On the other hand, for those who do believe in Jesus, for those who are citizens of heaven, then it means a radical change in priorities. It means no longer living for yourself or any earthly entity. Your king is now King Jesus, and your priorities become his, or his priorities become your priorities. We live in a world full of materialism and indulgence. I find myself getting sucked into it far more than I would care to admit. But to be a citizen of heaven means living first and foremost for that kingdom, not for ourselves or any earthly kingdom. That means using our time and our money to reflect that priority. It means that we should feel a closer bond of identity 
with a fellow Christian in China or Brazil or Denmark than with a non-Christian who shared our political beliefs here in the United States. That means we should care far more about the advancement of the kingdom of God than the advancement of any political agenda. That means we care far more about our identity in Christ than any national identity. To be a citizen of heaven means that our priorities must reflect the priorities of heaven. I just urge you to consider, to think about, are there any ways where your mind has been set on earthly things? Are there ways where your citizenship on earth is more important to you than your citizenship in heaven? In a way, you've kind of subtly, maybe without even thinking, taken on the values of our culture. You're living for this life here and now rather than living for eternity. And if there are, I just urge you, invite you to ask God to help you readjust those priorities. Ask God to to work in your heart to change your priorities so that you're living more and more as a citizen of heaven rather than a citizen of earth. You should follow Paul's example by remembering that we are citizens of heaven. And the other aspect of Paul's life that he holds up as worthy of imitation is his anticipation of eternity along with encouraging the Philippians to live as citizens of heaven here and now, he also encourages them to live in light of the fact that eternity is coming. And when it comes, all the trials, all the tribulations of this life will fall away and we will enjoy glorified bodies living in the sinful presence of Jesus forever. Verse 21, Paul's talking about Jesus when he says this, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This world can seem chaotic, seem like it's spinning out of control at times. We've all had moments where it feels like everything is falling apart. And it seems like nothing can go right. Maybe you find yourself in one of those moments now where it just feels like nothing going your way. And if so, I just urge you to, to take heart. There is coming a day when Jesus will bring everything under his control. He will set all things right. There will be no more sin, no more pain, no more broken relationships. He will bring everything under His control. He will give us new bodies. No longer will we have lowly bodies. This week, our our three-year-old daughter broke her arm. If you you add up all the ages of all our kids, we've We've raised nearly 20 years worth of kids, and this is our first broken bone, so 
that feels like pretty decent. Right? Right? But still, this is like a broken bone. It's a, it's a stark reminder right? that our bodies are, as Paul says, lowly, that they break, they get sick, that they age, that without some divine intervention, they will not last forever. But when we anticipate eternity, we remember that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And we get just a a powerful reminder of that in, in communion. In communion, we remember that, that Jesus' body was broken. He took the bread. He broke the bread. He said, this is my body given for you. When we take the cup, we remember that the blood of Jesus flowed out. That his blood was poured out for us. His lowly body was broken and his blood poured out so that by Believing in Him, our sins could be forgiven. That our citizenship could be in heaven. So that our relationship with God could be restored. Jesus let His body be broken. So that anyone who believes in Him could have eternal life and have their sins forgiven. But that's not the end of the story. We also remember... That even though Jesus' body was broken and blood was spilled, three days later, he rose again with a, a glorified body. A body that could not be broken. A body that could not be killed. A body that would never die. And that's the kind of body that Paul said that those who believe in Jesus will one day have. A glorified body like Jesus' body. A body that will not break. A body that will not get sick. A body that will not die. For all who believe in Jesus, our hope is not some disembodied eternity in heaven, but a physical body made glorified like Jesus' resurrected body. That's the hope we have when we take communion together. And in that glorified body, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will gather together with fellow Christians from all times and all places in the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will partake of another meal glorifying Jesus, a meal that this communion meal points us forward to. Here's the big takeaway. We're about to take communion. I just urge you, like, let this communion meal help you anticipate eternity. But it reminds you that the broken body of Jesus is not the end of the story. That he rose again in a glorified body. Because he rose again with a glorified body. We too will one day rise again. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, it will be with a glorified body that will never break, never get sick, and never die. And if you remember that, would that give you strength? Would it give you encouragement? Would it give you endurance to face any trials you may be facing right now? 
Uh, do you face a tribulation you're facing now with, with confidence that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will set all things right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you that though this life can be hard, though this life can be filled with trials and tribulations, though our bodies break and get sick, this life is not the end of the story. Father, we thank you above all for Jesus coming, living the sinless, perfect life that we failed to live. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross and in so doing, he offered us his sinless life in exchange for our sin so that by believing in him we may have our sins forgiven we may have eternal life where we will live forever in glorified bodies bodies that will not break bodies that will not get sick bodies that will not die Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross. And thank you for the hope of eternity that you offer us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how we do communion here. If you're new or visiting, we first would invite anyone who believes in Jesus, who is looking forward to that day when we will join together the membership of the Lamb, anyone who calls himself a Christian, to come to partake of this meal together. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be a regular tender. We'd invite anyone to come. So if you come, I invite you to come forward, grab a piece of bread, grab a cup of juice, and return to your seat. In the wicker baskets on the back of each table, there are gluten-free elements, if you would prefer that. If it's easier for you to stay in your seat and have the elements brought to you, you can just raise your hand. Pastor Ian will bring those to you. In a moment, you can come forward, grab the cup, grab the juice, return to your seat, and we will partake together when everyone has all the elements. Let me come.
Father, we thank you for the chance to remember. To remember how Jesus came, died for us. To remember how you have promised us that we will one day rejoice together, worshiping you in the new heavens and the new earth. The chance to remember that our lowly bodies will one day be replaced by glorified bodies. That precious truth give us the endurance to face the challenges that this life presents us with. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Jesus, we remember and we thank you for all that you've done. Would our love for you, would our 
trust in you. Impact how we live every moment of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That you leave this morning, would you leave remembering that you are first a citizen of heaven, that eternity awaits you. You are dismissed.